Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be starting at verse 10. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for uh, allowing us to uh, come together again, as you do so graciously, and giving us a leader like Mark to inquire about your Bible and what are the ramifications of what it says and how we can apply it to our life. And thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you, Tom. It's good to be back with everyone. I encourage uh, any of our listeners to be sure and go back and catch the previous podcasts in which we set the context of the letter to the Hebrews. I don't want to repeat too much each time, but we basically have a letter here written by an associate of Paul the Apostle to a Greek-speaking Judean synagogue community somewhere in the Roman world. We don't know exactly where. And before we pick up in chapter 2, I've got a couple of uh, points that I had overlooked in chapter 1 and then in chapter 2. One, at the very beginning of this letter in verse 2 of chapter 1, it says, In these last days he has spoken to us by one who is his son, as in contrast to in earlier times God spoke to our fathers through prophets. Now, this term, these last days, we talked about this in some of our previous examinations, but the non, I don't really know what the dispensational churches say about this, but The non-dispensational churches typically say that the last days began with the birth of Christ and are still ongoing, and many of them look for an imminent end of the universe because they believe that the term last days in the Bible refers to the end of the physical universe or physical creation. We had a lot to say about this, I think, as we went through the book of Acts recently. But I wanted to make this point in the book of Hebrews that the last days are identified here with the word spoken to us by Jesus. And I'll just ask uh, those on the air with us here, how many books of the Bible did Jesus personally write while he was in his fleshly body? Zero. Yeah, that was a fast, snappy answer. Thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> we only have one record in the Bible of Jesus writing anything, and that's he's writing in the dirt in the Gospel of John after the uh, woman accused of adultery is about to be stoned, and he kind of dissipates the crowd and gets her life saved there. He writes in the dirt, but we don't have any photographs of what he wrote in the dirt or anything. So other than that, he, he did not write any of this down. He spoke it, but yet he is the one given the credit for speaking in these last days. So when, I'll ask this question, when were the books we call the New Testament uh, written down? Or are they still being written down? All before 70 A.D. Well, that's what I believe. I mean, many scholars dispute that and claim that they were being written up into 100 or 98 or something like that. But uh, there's a lot of evidence that they were all completed before 70 A.D. So I just want to make these very important points. The last days of the Bible are not referring to the end of the physical universe. God doesn't even speak about that event in the Bible. What he is concerned with are the last days of the old age. And in the Judean mindset, which you can confirm by going to any modern-day Jewish website dealing with the last days or, or last age, they only knew of two ages. They knew of the age, the present age, and then they knew of the age of Messiah. Those were the, the two ages in Judean thought back in the first century, and they are actually still the two ages that modern-day rabbinic Jews uh, speak of as well. The, but they, they, of course, think that we are still in the present age, still waiting for the age of Messiah. But just notice how that the, the communication came by the Son of God as opposed to the prophets in these last days. So there's a perfect correlation between the term last days and the years from the crucifixion to 70 A.D. Basically, all of the New Testament books were written between 30s. I mean, we don't know of any books really that were written even that early, but they were written, you know, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s there of the first century. And so we see a good testimony that makes a lot more sense that the last days are the last days of the old age, the age of Moses and the temple. So I just wanted to point that out because I had uh, missed that earlier. And we see that he is already working through his new body to write these things down. He didn't write them down with his fleshly hands, his fleshly body. He waited until he could spiritually indwell his believers as his new spiritual body. And they actually wrote the words down that he spoke. And this communication is attributed to him. So... His body exists at this time, and the last days correlate to this period in which the New Testament was written, roughly 30 to 70 A.D. And then I had a couple of loose ends uh, in the last paragraph, verses 5 through 9 of chapter 2. 
that we talked about last time. Here, the writer is comparing the life form of God to the life form of angels to the life form of human beings. And there is a a pattern here of Adam as a type of Christ or of Christ as the last Adam. Adam was the first man of the old age and Christ is the first man of the new age. Only one was capable of undoing the effects of Adam's fall and ushering in the new age. And of course that was uh, Jesus Christ as the last Adam. And Paul picks up this theme in a few of his letters as well, the comparison between Adam and Christ. In verse 9, there's a reference that God has enthroned him, crowned him with glory and honor. And some scholars think this is referring to the transfiguration of Christ on the mount there, as is recorded in uh, most of the Gospels. We don't know for sure, but in some instances, this idea of crowning someone could refer to a hero going into an arena contest rather than a victorious king, which would have been more of the case with Jesus at the Transfiguration before he went into Jerusalem to face uh, his passion. All right, well, I just wanted to catch up on... Was that last reference, Mark? Which, which verses? Verse 9 of chapter 2. Okay, got it. Got one more note here. We have the idea here in verse 9 that Jesus tasted death so that we would not have to. Yeah, he should taste death for all. And I think Craig brought this up last time that in Western religious thought, Catholic and Protestant, there's this idea that Jesus died spiritually and was completely separated from the Father on the cross. Yet in Eastern Christianity, it's never been viewed that way. And the 22nd Psalm seems to tell us that it would be impossible for Christ to actually experience death. So there's a little contrast between just tasting of death and actually being totally dead, which would indicate complete separation from the Father. And again, dispensationalism has poisoned so much religious thought and turned the emphasis not only in dispensational churches but even in other churches just to the physical death that Christ suffered. And that's almost irrelevant. I mean, yes, he died a terrible death, but many human beings have died unjustly at the hands of corrupt governments. That aspect of it is not unique, but it's this aspect of intense spiritual suffering, which we'll be getting into uh, more and more as we get into the book of Hebrews. The idea is that what Christ did and what he experienced in his physical body were examples or even a road map that his spiritual body was to follow in beginning immediately after he uh, ascended and then, well, the day of Pentecost as the Spirit filled all of the believers there in Jerusalem. As the groom 
leads, the bride follows the groom. And we'll, we will see this, I think, more and more in the book of Hebrews. We saw it certainly in the book of Acts, where Peter and Paul followed exact parallels of the things that Christ in his fleshly body did in the Gospels as far as healing people, raising people from the dead, uh, suffering slander, false accusations, eventually uh, arrest and trials and so on. Although their executions are not detailed out for us, we know that they did occur. So we will see that Christ's suffering was a hint of what the body of Christ, the, the church, would endure during the, the years that we call the Great Tribulation. There are 66 to 70 um, A.D., as most of them were, were killed by the Judeans and the Romans working together. Okay, this brings us down here to where we're supposed to start, which is uh, in verse 10. So if we can, Tom, please read uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Yes, I'm reading from uh, ESV, English Standard Version. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All right, thank you very much. Okay, so in this paragraph, the writer is conveying how Jesus Christ was perfectly prepared to be the high priest of his people. And this is incredibly important because a huge amount of the argument in this letter is going to be based around what the high priest did. And he only had one responsibility all year long, which was to officiate at the highest, most holy day on the Mosaic calendar, which was the Day of Atonement. And that's uh, Yom Kippur, I believe, isn't that correct, to modern-day Jews? Yes, I think so. So the high priest had this lofty position. He probably sat as the supreme justice of the Sanhedrin court, but he only officiated as priest one day of the year on the Day of Atonement. And so when we get 
deeper into this letter, we're going to go back and study in great detail what had to happen by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. We're going to see how this illuminates the redemptive work of Christ in a different way than you can get reading the New Testament alone. I mean, it's it's beyond the human capacity of understanding to really grasp all that was involved in Christ's redemptive work. But you cannot understand all that God has given us to understand about it without studying these things in the Old Testament that are definitively types of Christ's redemptive work. And this Hebrew letter will definitely show us that the whole aspect of the Day of Atonement, every aspect of it, the sacrifice itself, the priest, the sequence, everything, all prefigured his redemptive work as our high priest. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. He's going to make an argument here of how that God's plan was to create the perfect high priest in verse 10, he's called the uh, captain of their salvation or pioneer in some translations. And yours may have even been uh, different than either of those, Tom, what you read. But sufferings are, are, is kind of the key word here in verse 10. Uh, he had to endure suffering. And his disciples would also have to endure suffering. Through suffering, Jesus became perfectly qualified to become the Savior of his people. The goal was to lead many sons to glory here. God's eternal purpose in the Bible from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation is to bring a remnant of the human race into close relationship with God as family and so to make them the true sons of God and Christ taught about this as far as raising up sons of Abraham from stones and other images like that but this is tied into all the promises and the prophets that in the last days all nations would be called together into uh, the new Jerusalem. And so this purpose of God for Christ to lead many sons to glory, and of course glory is to be in the presence of the Father and to reflect His presence out. The, the glory of the Father is the Son, and the glory of the Son is the Bride, which is us. So we are to reflect His glory as sons who have been led there by the sufferings of Jesus Christ would be kind of another way to paraphrase the idea here in verse 10. This idea of the high priest officiating on the Day of Atonement conveys to us that the high priest had to suffer with the people. The high priest couldn't even go into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies until his own sins had been atoned for. Jesus, of course, didn't have to worry about that uh, particular uh, problem. But then 
in addition to being the high priest, he's also the sacrifice that uh, is offered on the Day of Atonement, which we'll get into the details of which later. Moving into verse 11, the sanctifier and those who are sanctified all come from one stock, which is why he's not ashamed to call them uh, brothers. So again, it's this idea of family, of creating a new family of God. The old family of God was physical Israel. And the new family of God is, I believe, spiritual Israel, those who rule with God. God's the king. His family rules with him as princes, as priests in the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual kingdom, as we've been seeing in many, many previous examinations. The idea here in verse 11 is, in order for humanity to be joined to God in one family, something had to change because the life form of God is from everlasting. It's uncreated life or Zoe life in the Greek. And below that is angelic life, which is created life, but there's a lot about it we don't understand. And then below angelic life is human life, which the Bible tells us uh, all about how it came to pass and so on. But they're not of the same kind. And I believe when we see Adam naming all the animals in the Garden of Eden, he's serving as a type of Christ. Of course, he gets through all the animals, and they're paired off male and female of each kind. And this happens again a little bit later as the ark is being prepared and God sends the animals of the same kind to the ark. But Adam didn't have any helpmeet of his kind amongst all of the creation. There was no helpmeet suitable for Adam. And this, I think, is teaching us through typology that humanity in its created form was not suitable to be the helpmeet of Christ as Christ's bride. But through an act of special creation, God opened up Adam's side and took a rib out and from that created a perfect helpmeet for him. And this prefigures Christ dying on the cross and then his side being opened up in blood and water coming forth. The bride comes forth through blood and water to be a perfect helpmeet for Christ through an act of special creation, the new creation, which is found in the Bible, and it's found in you know some hymns and songs, this idea of new creation. The new creation is the new age. It is the new spiritual family of God. And I believe that the old creation only came about because God had the new or second creation in mind from the beginning. He had to create physical man in his image so that when the new creation came about through Christ dying on the cross, humanity could be cleansed to receive the uncreated life of God. In order to do that, though, verse 11 here tells us that they had to be of one stock. In other words, God first lowered himself to human life so that he could take hold 
of humankind, and uh, that that's down in verse 16. And this is translated rather poorly in many of the uh, versions where it says, it is not, you see, of angels, but of the offspring of Abraham that he takes hold. So Christ didn't just drop down one level to the angels. He skipped them and came down two levels to grab hold of humanity. To grab, I mean, like a, a man would take a woman to be his wife. This idea of taking hold is a, is a pretty good translation. And uh, that's in the literal translation. That's what the, the Greek says there. But King James says, took on. There's many different translations that really water this down. But Christ had to take on human form to grab hold of humanity to be able to work his work, which would lift humanity up to the eternal life of God. So I guess it's a little, it's a difficult concept. It was not explained or taught or anything in any of the Bible classes I've been to since I was uh, very young. But I believe this is a very, very key concept. Humanity and God are not of the same kind. But through the redemptive work of Christ, by Christ becoming human, then humanity could become like God, and that's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. They have been made suitable to be part of the family of God by his redemptive work. And then he quotes from the 22nd Psalm, that I will declare your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing Mark, your praise. Yeah. Mark, in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about his brothers. And the Schofield Reference Bible interprets the brothers to mean only Jewish converts to Christianity. That's the way the Schofield Bible has bent this concept of brothers, Jesus' brothers. Yeah, well, it's, it's unfortunate because, again, they, they uh, insist on interpreting all of the promises in the Old Testament uh, physically. They use the term literally. But what that really means is they want a physical fulfillment. And so since Israel was the, the physical family of God in those days, they are looking for that to be recreated, and they completely miss God's intent to create a spiritual family from all nations of mankind. So as brethren here in, in verse 11, do I understand that to be all followers of Christ? Well, I certainly think so, yes. Okay. Hey, Mark. Yes. I had a thought that popped into my head as you're going through there. You know, Satan's lie to Eve was that she could become like God, and that was a lie. But you kind of bring it full circle that Jesus' death did eventually bring that about. But, you know, if she hadn't sinned, his death would not be possible. So I just kind of yep. that kind of struck me as you were talking about that, and yeah, I've never heard what you're talking about, but it's it's really makes a lot of sense. Well, that's an excellent point, and of course, what he was suggesting is that by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she could become like God. But this was not God's plan. 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden really was a stand-in or a foretaste of the law of Moses, which, you know, tells us right from wrong, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the law of Moses and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are very, very closely connected. And so in Jesus' time, you have Pharisees and scribes demanding a place in God's presence because they were tithing the herb gardens that grew in their window planters. You know, I'm, ex- I'm exaggerating a little right. bit, but Jesus right. is pronouncing woe on them because they are demanding a place in God's presence by their perfect law-keeping. It was mm-hmm. never God's intent that man could be made equal to God through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, he said, no, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. When you try to make your standing in God's presence based on your law-keeping, you will fail. Right, And so the only way for humanity to be elevated to God's eternal life is through the tree of life, which was freely given to them for food in the garden. And they lost their access to it and the, the cherubim and the flaming sword and so on. But this, the tree of life was given back to man in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the tree of life. And so we cannot have a place in God's family, a standing before God, by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just like the scribes and Pharisees, I mean, how many woes did Christ pronounce upon them? Their law-keeping was a joke, but they thought they were perfect. We can Mm -hmm. only have a standing in God's family by letting the Spirit of Christ indwell us, by letting Him be our food, as He told His disciples, His listeners in the Gospel of John, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And so we must let Him fill us, fill our being, and we must die to ourselves and live to Him and let that tree of life be our food. Of course, it's spiritual food. It's not physical mm-hmm. nourishment. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and again, we mm-hmm. want to point that out as we go through this letter. That when we see the term faith, when we see the term heavenly, I think we can substitute the concept of spiritual for those words, for faith mm-hmm. or for heavenly, mm-hmm. spiritual things. Without understanding the spiritual concepts of the Bible, you know, we cannot come to God. And yet the horror of our dispensational friends and relatives is that they turn their back on this and insist on a physical fulfillment, a physical kingdom, a return to the law, the the temple, the priest, the red heifer, and all that. So, anyway, thanks for bringing that up because that is an idea that it, it does come full circle. It ties a lot mm-hmm. of this together. It's just eye-opening to me. Thank you. Yes, Mark, sir. another thought here on this verse 16, the offspring of Abraham. Paul actually explains that very well in Galatians. We've talked about this before, uh, verse 16, chapter 3. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And then he goes down further, uh, verse 28, 
For as there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's that's an excellent tie-in here. Christ and Israel are one. We are nothing as of ourselves. It is only us as part of the body of Christ, which is spiritual Israel, that we are anything. I mean, here it's talking about Christ taking hold of the offspring of Abraham, which are obviously not him if he's taking hold of them. But yet in Galatians, that is him. But he and the body are one. He's the head, we're the body. The the same blood must flow in the head and the body, or it's not a well-functioning being, is it? <laughs> you know, if if your head had a different blood supply than the rest of your body, that wouldn't be a very healthy being. So it's this idea of the marriage, all of the teaching on marriage in the Bible. I mean, Paul sums it up. He says, this is a great mystery. The two shall become one flesh. It's a great mystery, but I speak of Christ and the church. And, and so I guess some would claim this is an apparent contradiction, but it's really not. It's Christ and the offspring of Abraham. Christ referred to himself at one point as the offspring of Abraham. Paul refers to him as the offspring of Abraham. But all those children by faith, in other words, those who have a spiritual view of God's promises to Abraham, are one with Christ. I may have confused it a little more, but uh, anyway, really good thoughts. This is considered like the second most difficult book in the Bible to understand, uh, Hebrews. And again, these are not concepts that are taught in most of the churches because of, of the horrible influence of dispensationalism. I mean, I don't know how they can keep this book in their Bible. They would really need to just clip it out and throw it in the trash. Okay, so he quotes there from the 22nd Psalm. And the 22nd Psalm is basically saying that uh, Christ is now the head of a new mankind because, again, he's taken human life and elevated it up to the life of God. So as Adam was the first man of human life, Christ is the first man of divine life in man. I mean, that's what Christ was, right? Divine life in man. And now through him, all of us have divine life in man, all those who follow him. So that's the relevance of the 22nd Psalm. Now, then he quotes from Isaiah 8, and it's just a real brief snippet of Isaiah 8, verse 17 here. I will place my trust in him, there in verse 13. But we really have to carry the context of the passage forward. This is written to a synagogue community who had heard the prophets read every Saturday that they had ever gone to synagogue. And so when they heard a little snippet out of the prophets, it would have immediately brought to mind the context of that little snippet. I mean, just to say that Isaiah said, I will place my trust in him. I mean, that doesn't really give you the idea of what's really going on in Isaiah 8. The idea there in Isaiah 8 is that Israel has turned completely away from God and Yahweh is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. 
but Isaiah is going to hope in Yahweh even though he has turned his face away from Israel. So it, it's really important that we bring that context forward when a little snippet of an Old Testament passage is quoted in the New Testament. Now this is in direct contradiction to the Bible interpretation followed by our dispensational friends. They were originally called fundamentalists in the 1880s, back when Cyrus Schofield was batting around the frontier in America, going to these fundamentalist camp meetings and so on. But they interpret the Bible physically unless the context forces them into a spiritual interpretation. The other aspect of their method of Bible interpretation is that every verse and maybe every part of any verse stands alone as the Word of God. And it's been some time since we talked about this, and I, it had almost slipped my mind. But this is a, an incredibly dangerous way of interpreting the Bible to uh, jump to the reason why a text without a context is a pretext, one scholar said. And so to take a snippet of, of a verse or passage and take it out of its context and say it's the Word of God, I mean, this has been used to justify many dispensational teachings and ideas. They do that, of course, with Genesis 12 all the time. They miss the whole context, and so it's twisting God's Word into something totally opposite of what God intended. So it's very important that we actually make an attempt to uh, carry these contexts forward. Mark, how long has this dispensationalist ideas been in effect? I mean, when did that start? Sorry to digress again. Well, no, that's important history that we like. Chuck really likes it when we bring this up regularly. But this only began in the 1840s, 1850s in the United Kingdom with uh, Darby, a guy named Darby. And it was based on some vision that a young girl in Scotland had and Darby created this whole new way of looking at the Bible. It's a really new religious view in, in the big scheme of things. And wow, it, it, it's, it's based so pervasive on a, now. Yep. It, oh, yeah, yeah, which with the publication of the Schofield Reverence Bible, what, 1908. But it didn't take on in the United Kingdom, but he came to the United States around the time of the uh, war in the 1860s, and uh, it really caught fire on the frontier of America far more than it did in hmm. England, Scotland, and Ireland. Hmm. Great. So, yeah, that's Thanks. when that started. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Darby wrote a Bible himself, which I've not read, but which is a precursor to the Schofield Reference Bible, I understand. But the Schofield did not complete his work until 1908. Yeah. yeah and thanks. he became the kind of, kind of the biblical leader of the dispensational movement. Okay. All right. In the last part of verse 13, we have a snippet from Isaiah 8 again, but verse 18. Here am I, I am the children that God has given me. So, again, an allusion to a family for God. Israel, physical Israel definitely served that or was supposed to. They failed over and over again, which is the whole story of the Old Testament. But uh, there is a close association in Isaiah's prophecy between the coming Messiah, 
and a remnant of Israel. And in this letter to the Hebrews, that is the son and his brothers who fill this place of what Isaiah is talking about as the Messiah and the remnant of Israel. And we, we talked a lot about that as we went through the book of Acts. The complete sentence in Isaiah is, Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And nearly every time you see this term Mount Zion in the Old Testament in the prophets, this is looking forward to the spiritual kingdom of Messiah or what we call the New Jerusalem. I mean, it, it is exactly the New Jerusalem that we see at the end of Revelation coming down from heaven prepared as a bride for her groom. So these children are a sign in Israel. And this is certainly the role that the believers were playing within the first century Judean nation. And yet over and over, the Judeans rejected the message that Jesus was Messiah. They were looking for a physical fulfillment. They did not see that in Jesus of Nazareth. And only a tiny remnant of the Judean nation became these children of God and were given the gift of God's eternal, uncreated life. And, of course, they served as the representatives of Christ on earth. His physical body had served its purpose. I believe it didn't exist anymore. His body was the body of believers that he spiritually indwelt there uh, after the day of Pentecost. These children whom God has given as verse 14 continues, are sharers in flesh and blood. Again, the idea that Christ, in order to elevate them to the life of God, had to lower himself to the life of humans to share in flesh and blood so that through death he might bring to nothing the one who held the power of death, namely the devil. And strong identity in the Old Testament between the devil and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The devil holding the power of death, and we have been raised on this medieval European vision that the devil is this being with a red tail and horns and all that, but that's not in the Bible. That is a creation of the, of the Dark Ages in Europe used to keep the masses under control it's it's amazing. I have a friend in Carlsbad who doesn't believe the devil is a really a personal being, but is more or less the idea of evil, uh, the personification of evil. And it's amazing you can substitute the Jewish leadership or Judean leadership in many passages that talk about the devil. And uh, it works quite well because they had the power of death. They were in charge they thought of the law of Moses and the law was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which the devil said you should eat of and they continued to eat of it after they were offered the tree of life they chose instead to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and so the result for them was sin 
and the result of sin is always death, as Paul goes into detail in the book of Romans. But that's another hypothesis to explore sometimes there. This lifelong bondage in verse 15 certainly is this idea of, of bondage to the law. Bondage to the law of Moses is comparable to the children of Israel being in bondage in Egypt. They were in bondage to sin. They were in bondage to slavery in Egypt. And God, with mighty works, pulled them out of that and delivered them, which was an intentional precursor of the work of Christ, who with mighty works and power pulled them out of that bondage to sin or or eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and gave them the tree of life as an alternative uh, food to that. And uh, now we're back to verse 16 where he, again, he jumps down below the angels to the offspring of Abraham, humans, but not any humans, only a remnant, only those who are children by faith, by a spiritual interpretation of the promises to Abraham. Uh, Again, that, that land promised in Genesis 12 was not physical real estate, it was Mount Zion. It was the kingdom of Messiah. And at the end of this letter, we'll see that just spelled out explicitly that this Abraham looked beyond those physical things and saw a city not built with human hands. So again, I don't know how our dispensational friends uh, can have that idea in their Bible. Well, it's not in their Bible. It's in their footnotes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have the same Bible you do. Okay, so verse 17, it was necessary for him to be made like his brothers in all aspects so as to become a merciful and faithful high priest where their responsibility to God is concerned with a view to making atonement for the people's sins. So Jesus had to come down below the angels to take on a human form to become this perfect, merciful, faithful high priest so he could officiate at the Day of Atonement, which, again, we're going to talk about in detail later on in the letter. The purpose of the Day of Atonement was to make atonement for Israel's sin. And the old Day of Atonement did not do that, really. But the real Day of Atonement really did that, which was Jesus there on the cross. So we'll be getting into that in more detail. Since he himself endured trial and suffering, he is able to help those who endure trials. So he's been, anything we have to go through, he's been there first. He's gone through it uh, himself. All right. I've been a little long-winded this evening. Any comments or questions here on anything in the second chapter? Well, I think you covered it very well, Mark. I think this was exceptionally interesting, and and the comments were very good, too. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, 
for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.